0: Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. And if you're a visitor or, or a guest, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And uh, if I haven't met you, I would love to meet you after the service. If you have time to, to stick around, I'd love to just greet you formally and, and welcome you. We, we're glad that you're here. Um, if you do have a Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, there's, uh, the passage is also printed in your order of service, so you can follow along there. Um, for the last couple weeks, we've been in this book of Ephesians, and last week we heard how Paul reminded us of who we once were, that, that part of our uh, humanity, part of our identity and experience in this world was that of those who, who were dead in our sins and trespasses, that there was enmity between us and God, and, and that was deserving of death, that, that enmity, that rebellion that we had against God in our sin was deserving of our death. And, and yet, yet God, in his goodness and his grace to us, did not leave us dead. But the good news of the gospel is that, that God, through our Lord Jesus, actually brought us to new life. He breathed life into us, that Jesus took on flesh and lived and died and rose again to redeem us to the Father. And that is good news. It is good news. But, but the good news doesn't stop there. You see, Paul doesn't stop in Ephesians chapter 2. with just talking about the salvation that Christ has won for us, that has been poured out upon us, because what we see in the latter half of Ephesians 2 is that we are not simply saved as individuals, but as individuals we are saved into a community. And that's the other part of the good news. That we are not left alone in our salvation, but that God actually calls us into a people, his body, his church. And that's where Paul takes us this morning in the latter half of Ephesians 2. So if you would, follow along with me, beginning in verse 11 of Ephesians 2. being joined together grows into a holy temple in the lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for god by the spirit friends this is the word of the lord thanks be to god well um i don't know really any latin i never learned it Um, i think it would be really cool to know I think it'd be really cool to know Latin, um, but, but I never took the time. I never took it in school, but there are a couple of phrases that I know. Busum, musum non tollit" is one of them. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. Uh, that'll come up in another sermon, I'm sure. But, but there's another Latin phrase that I know that all of us probably know as well, because um, we've seen it many, many times, the, the motto of the United States, right? E pluribus unum. What, what's E pluribus unum? Out of the many, one people, right? Out of the many, one. Out of the many, one. That Some of y'all know it. <laughs> Out of the many, one. E pluribus unum. Uh, it's actually a really uh, captivating vision, isn't it? This idea that there are many people, that regardless of background, regardless of history, regardless of ethnicity or race, economics or social standing, regardless of, of any of these things that would normally divide us, that, that there is one thing that might unite us out of the many, one. It, it's, it's an incredible ideal that has been put before us, that, that we can actually put aside all these divisions and come together as one people, as Americans. So regardless of where you came from, even those far-off places like Canada, you can still be <laughs> one person, right? One people, American. It's captivating. It, it's a fascinating idea, and it's actually not one that is unique to the United States. Um, before the U.S., the, the British tried to embody this, right? Right? They were going to make the world British. Now, they tried to do it by colonialization, right, and imperialism. They started to take over uh, uh, different places, and they, they imported their British ways upon different people, right, kind of uh, making the world British. And before the British, the Romans were trying to do this, right, with their intricate system of roads and their common language, and everybody under one leader, Caesar, out of the many, one. That they were going to unite around this idea of what it means to be an American, or what it means to be British, or what it means to be Roman, out of the many, one. Well, how's that gone? Like throughout history, I mean, has that gone pretty well? You know, uh, Rome, uh, Rome fell, and uh, British ways have gone by the wayside. And uh, I mean, you know, would would you characterize America right now as unified? <laughs> Maybe the only thing we're unified around is the fact that we're not unified, right? <laughs> that, that we're actually very uh, disparate, right? That we're, we're different, that we are divided. But, but forget about uh, national news. Forget about countries, nation states, those sorts of things. W- what about in your own life? Do you feel a lot of unity in your own life? In the relationships that you have? In your places of work, in your families? Are, are they characterized by unity? I think for many of us, it's actually disunity that they're characterized by. And this isn't something new in our day. It's not something new to us, and it's not something that is new to nation-states or political realms. This is something that is common for even the church. Even the people of God have experienced disunity and disharmony. Right? That, that we have segmented and segregated different portions of God's people into different places. This isn't new just for us. This is actually a reality of the church that Paul's writing to. You remember in Ephesians, Paul's writing to a group of people, Jewish and Gentile believers. So these people with different histories, different heritages, different understandings of what it meant to be God's people are now coming together and there to live as one. E pluribus unum. The many are to live as one. And they're wrestling with that question. How are the many to be one? It's not just a question for them. It's a question for us. It's a question for our time. It's a question for our church. How are the many to live together as one? Well, it's that question that Paul is taking up in the second half of Ephesians. See, he's already directed us to how we are one in the Lord. But now he's going to talk about how we are one together. And before he points us to our unity, what this oneness that we have, he's going to remind us of what has separated us, our disunity. That's where he begins, how the many were separated. We see it in verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What Paul is pointing to is how this disunity, this disharmony was being manifested and it was being reflected in four different ways. The first is there's a social uh, there's a social segmentation that is going on. We heard it when Paul speaks about you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. Okay, now, when Paul says this, right, he, he's not just making a neutral observation. Like, those are the uncircumcised people and those are the circumcised. Like, that's not what he's doing here. Okay? The, the people who are saying this are those who claim the circumcision. So it's a way of actually speaking in a, in a, a pejorative way. That you uncircumcised people, you're not like us. You're very different. This is like in high school. Um, maybe some of you are experiencing this now. Maybe some of you all remember this. In high school, the little clicks that form. Uh, they don't just remain in high school, right? But these little cliques that form, and I don't know if, uh, you know, back when I was in high school, <laughs> that sounds so old, but um, back when I was in high school, these little cliques that form, we, we actually named ourselves. So m- my friends and I, we called ourselves the clam diggers. I have no idea why we were the clam diggers, but that's what we called ourselves. We're the clam diggers. And when I was a freshman, there was a group of high school students who called themselves the empire. The empire. Like, can, can I mean, Okay, elitist, right? Yes. <laughs> but, but what was fascinating about these groups was it was a way of uh, distingu- distinguishing ourselves from other people, right? The empire, the people who were of that group, they spent time together. They, uh, they got their lockers together. They went to class together. They ate lunch together. They spent their weekends together. And guess what? If you weren't part of them, then you didn't get to do those things with them. It was a way of saying we belong and you do not and that's what's happening in the church the uncircumcision by the circumcision you don't belong but we do there's this social distinction that's occurring but it's not just social it's also nationalistic Paul speaks of it again in verse in verse 12 he says you Gentiles were alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel they were foreigners and outsiders not one of us. There's also a ceremonial distinction occurring in verse 12. They're strangers to the covenant of promise. Right? That, that these Gentiles, they don't know the religious truths and histories. They're, it's a way of reiterating their pagan past. You don't belong. But finally, the, the fourth way that this separation was reflected is through physical Separation in verse 14 paul speaks of this dividing wall of hostility this dividing wall of hostility what is that well most people think it's a clear reference to the temple okay so the temple at this time it would have been constructed by herod it's the temple that herod constructed in jerusalem and i want us to think now just imagine the structure of the temple complex not just the temple itself but the whole complex so at the farthest end of the complex was the temple itself. It was elevated on kind of an uh, elevated piece of earth. It, it was high up so everyone could see. And to just the east of the temple was the court where the sacrifices were made. Okay? So, so there were walls surrounding this. And then to the east of that was the court of the Israelites where only Israelite men, okay, not women, but only Israelite men could come. And they could observe the, the ceremonial actions occurring. There was another court off to the side for the women. And then uh, going down, proceeding down from the court of the Israelites were some steps. And, And then this open area and these walls. And outside the walls was the court of the Gentiles. So I want you to think about that. Temple, another court, another court, more space, and walls. And this is where they were. They could look up and they could see the temple and they could maybe see the smoke coming up from the sacrifices. And maybe they could see some of the people walking around in the court of the Israelites. And yet, where they were was very far away. They couldn't go forward. These different ways of preventing them from entering in, from being part of the ceremony of Israel. In fact, there were clear delineations, not just by walls, but actually by words inscribed on one of the walls. We have archaeological evidence that, that reflects this. On one of the walls, it says, No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. They were outside. They weren't to approach They were to remain very, very far away, very distant. These physical obstructions, these physical ways of separating parts of the church. This this didn't die with the New, New Testament. This actually continued on, sadly to say. These sorts of physical and social and economic separations. In uh, some of the early churches in our own country, they have uh, box pews. Have you all ever seen a box pew? So if you go up to Boston, there's that old church, the, the one, um, was it uh, uh, one by land, two by sea, or, or two by, two by land, one by sea, I, the, the old church, right? Sorry, I'm not American, so it's okay, I don't get this, right? <laughs> but you know the church I'm talking about, it's still there, it's still there, and you can go in there. And, um, and they have box pews. And a box pew is that, it's, it's a box surrounding a pew. And it's got high walls and you would sit in it. And, and you know the, the reason why they created these supposedly is to try and keep the heat in on cold days. But what's fascinating about these box pews is that people rented them. So you paid for them on an annual basis. So this was a revenue stream for the church. Which is kind of interesting, you know, maybe we could fund our building, you know, this one's going to be a 100- hundred... No, we're not going to do that. Uh, we're not going to do that. So, um, but, but uh, depending on where your box was, depending on where your pew was, you spent more money. So if you were close to the aisle or you were near the front, it cost you more rent. And everyone knew it. And so it was a way of actually creating social separation between people within the congregation. And a physical separation because it was just me and my family that sat in this box. We, we didn't look over, right? We didn't gaze over and see all the other people. It was a physical, a social, an economic way of separating out, of segmenting different parts of the congregation. I mean, that wasn't very long ago. And we don't have to go even that far back into church history to see even greater seg- segmenting of separating of God's people. Many churches had balconies. And you know why many of the churches had balconies? It wasn't because of overflow. It wasn't because they needed the extra, extra room. Many churches had balconies because that's where the black parishioners sat, where the African-Americans sat to hear God's word. That this is a part of our history. And, and it's not just the South, right? Like, this was all over America. And it was in Europe as well. That the church has a horrible history of segmenting and segregating itself racially, ethnically, socially, economically. It wasn't just a problem then, it's a problem now. That's not okay. It's not right. That's not the way that the church is supposed to be. That is the many living separate, not as one what are we supposed to do about that like how do we handle this we could enact policies right we could try harder we can make valiant attempts to to move towards unity we could try those sorts of things but but those efforts right we we know that they have failed for millennia so we need something more we need something that's going to transcend Ethnic diversity. We're going to need something that's going to tra- transcend historical differences. We're going to need something that transcends ethnic ethnic um, disunity. We don't need policy. We need a person, and that's actually where Paul points them to. In the midst of the many being separated, he points them to a person. He points them to Jesus. See, we are the one who are united because of this one Jesus. He is the one who unites us. And that's what Paul directs us to. And the first way that Jesus unites us is that he destroys. <laughs> now, that sounds odd because destruction and unity, right? Like those two things don't go together, and yet that's what he does. Listen to the language that Paul uses in verse 14. Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In verse 15, he abolished the law. In verse 16, by the cross, he killed the hostility. Broken down, abolished, killed. Jesus' work on the cross, his death brought the death to what divides. That's what he did. And what he begins to destroy is actually what divided us from the Father. Paul already talked about this in the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, but it's like he can't stop talking about the gospel, which is good news. Um, but in verse 16, he says we might, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, that hostility that was between us and the Father. It is eradicated through Jesus' death. That the hostility, the enmity that we had between us and God, it is no more because Jesus has put it to death, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just destroy what separated us from the Father, he also destroys what separates us from one another. In verse 14, he references the dividing wall, and Jesus has broken it down. Remember that temple? All those walls and all those courts, they are gone. That regardless of race or regardless of place within the community, all now have access because of Christ. All may enter in. The physical divisions are destroyed. But it's not just these physical uh, divisions, it's also the ceremonial structures. That's what I think he's talking about in verse 15 when it says abolishing the law. Abolishing the law. Now this can get kind of confusing Because we know Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to what? Fulfill the law. So how can Paul now be saying he abolished the law? Okay, so we need to think about this a little bit. So the law can be referring to uh, the Torah as a whole, okay? It could be talking about that, or it could be talking about one of the different categories of the law. So... Um, We oftentimes categorize the law in three different ways. There's the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, right, which Jesus reiterates. There's the civil law, which was the law that dictated and determined how Israel was to function as a nation state. And then there was the ceremonial law, which helped guide them in how they were to worship God. And I think it's that third use of the law, that not the third use of the law in the way we, you guys know what I'm saying, that third category of the law that I think Paul is talking about here, the ceremonial aspect. And the reason I think this is because of the reference to the temple. You see, the temple just didn't create physical barriers, but it also caused ceremonial barriers. Because the only people who could approach, approach the Lord were those who were holy who had been ceremonially and ritually cleansed and made holy, that those who were unclean had to remain far away, that they could not even approach it. Even those who had the category of clean, there were limitations on where they could go. And yet that ceremonial distinction, those ritualistic distinctions, they are no more. That Jesus has destroyed them. He's brought them to an end. So that all those who are of the Father, all those who are called by Christ can now approach him. That there is no ceremonial distinction. We are all holy, we're told. Jesus tears down what separates us from God and what separates us from one another. He's reconciling us to the Father individually, but he's also reconciling us together. He doesn't just destroy but then Jesus unites us by creating. and What he creates is a new body, a new person. Chapter 2 was talking about us as individuals, but now, the beginning of chapter 2 is individuals, but now he's talking about the corporate. This corporate creation, this corporate renewal, listen to the language that Paul uses in verse 15. He might create in himself one new man in the place of two. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together. You hear the corporate aspects of this? Out of two, there's now one. Out of the many, there is now a single. This this corporate discussion is actually really important for us to hear in our cultural moment. And when I mean cultural moment, I mean since really the Enlightenment. So the cultural moment of the last few hundred years. Because with the dawning of the Enlightenment, we had this elevation of the individual, right? It's about my freedoms. And it's about my, my desires and my longings. And about what I want to do and what I think is right. And, and as we have done that, as we have elevated the individual, we have done so at times to the, to the hindrance of the corporate. So we need to be reminded that God doesn't just save us as individuals. He does, but he saves us as individuals into a people, into a body. And so this means that we can't be the church by ourselves. That the church in isolation is is something that does does not exist. That the church by ourselves as individual people is foreign to the New Testament. If we are a body, a people that God is calling together as individuals, but as a corporate unit, that that's who we are. Where there were two, Jesus makes one. Where there were strangers, Jesus makes into a household. Where there were divided parts, Jesus is solidifying them together. The implication is clear, like you're, you're not meant to be on your own. This doesn't mean you don't have agency and there's not individual responsibility and all those sorts of things. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that even as you are called by the Father, you are not called to individual isolation, but you are called into a people. The church is the people that Jesus is called out of sin, and by his blood, he not only unites us to himself, but he unites us to one another. See, See, Jesus isn't just creating an organization, he's creating a new humanity. A new humanity. A new people. We heard it in our assurance of pardon, a holy nation. A people called out by God. That, that is what we are to be. He's calling us into this corporate being, but, but he's not just creating a new humanity, a new people. He then takes us and he builds us. He builds us together into this new temple. It's what we hear in verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's an incredible image, isn't it? I mean, think about the contrast Paul's setting up here. The, the old temple was one that was marked by division, separation, but there is a new temple where there is no more division anymore, but it is actually us. That, that's what he calls you, not as an individual, but you as a part of this corporate body, that we are the temple of God. The place in which the Holy Spirit inhabits and dwells in to make us a holy temple. That's an incredible thought. In other places, Paul talks about individuals' bodies, individual Christians' bodies as being a holy temple unto the Lord. But now he extends that metaphor to include all of God's people. To include us as a corporate entity. And so you know what this means? It means I need you. And it means you need me. And y'all need each other. Like, y'all need y'all. That's what this means. That, that we need one another. That it means that you can't be the church by yourself. That you can't be built into this holy temple on your own. That it means that, that if you remove yourself, it actually not only hurts yourself, but it hurts the church. That's how closely tied we are together. That when a Christian would remove themselves from the body of believers, they hurt themselves, but they hurt those that they are leaving behind as well. It's kind of like Jenga. You guys have played Jenga, right? Those different blocks, and you build them up, and and you know you form that that tower, and it's stable, right? It doesn't move. But the point of Jenga is you start pulling out pieces, right? Right? we know that as soon as you pull out one piece it doesn't teeter and totter yet right it still stands pretty straight pretty firm but we know that as soon as you pull out one it starts to weaken we may not see how it's weakening but we see it start we know we just know it's going to and then we keep pulling right and we tap and we're hoping that this one won't cause it to fall but eventually right what happens it's oh, whoa, right like it's teetering and tottering and then finally comes crashing down soon as you remove one, it starts to weaken the whole. Same is true of the church. That Christ has actually created it in such a way that we need each other. That I need you and you need me. That we need one another to be built and to be formed and to be created into this holy temple. Friends, let me encourage you. In the four or five or so months that my family and I have been here, this is what we've seen. We see this in you. We see how, how the, the ways that you love one another and support each other we we see the the commitment that you have to pursuing good together. I've I've seen how in the midst of hard conversations and difficult interactions and awkward moments that doesn't cause you to retreat and pull away, but but that you pursue and you remain committed and intact, that that you continue to be the church. Friends, that is beautiful. It's the way it's supposed to be. That is what Christ is forming us into this holy temple that is united together. And, and so let me tell you, don't stop. Don't stop doing that. I need it, and so do you. We're, we're not meant to be the many. We're meant to be one. E pluribus unum. That's the motto of the church, not of America. E pluribus unum, that the many would be one. That is a captivating vision. It is a wonderful ideal to strive towards. Every attempt to try and do it apart from Jesus, it will only lead to division. But, but in Christ, because he has broken down the walls that divide us between us and the Father, and the wall, walls that divide us between you and me and each other, because he has broken them down, we no longer live as many men and many women and many children, but we live as one people. Church, God's people that are being built together into one. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness, for your love for us, for the calling of many to come together as your people, regardless of race or ethnicity, regardless of social status or economic wealth, We know that you call us to be your own, and so we ask that you would unite us. Unite us together around the gospel, that though there may be differences, that we would find commonality in Jesus. For he is the one who has called us, and it is in his name that we pray.